Welcome to Noir Talk, a podcast devoted to discussing the Film Noir Foundation. My name is Hagai Litsur, and I'll be your host as we discuss issues related to the Film Noir Foundation, or the FNF, as we'll sometimes be referring to it. The FNF is a nonprofit public benefit organization created by Eddie Muller in 2005 to educate and promote the cultural, historical, and artistic significance of film noir as an international cinematic movement. The FNF's mission is to find and preserve noir films in danger of deterioration, damage, or loss, and to ensure that high-quality prints of these classic films remain in circulation for theatrical exhibition to future generations. Our podcast will focus primarily on conversations with the people behind the Film Noir Foundation's Noir City Film Festivals and the Noir City e-Magazine. The Noir City Film Festivals kick off every year in January at the Flagship Festival in San Francisco continuing throughout the year with satellite festivals in Seattle, Hollywood, Austin, Chicago, Detroit, and Washington, D.C. The FNF's restoration and preservation efforts are often highlights of festival screenings, and here on the podcast, we'll be featuring festival previews and wrap-ups, including behind-the-scenes stories from festival participants. The Noir City e-Magazine is a quarterly publication sent via email to FNF donors. If you sign up for our mailing list and make a donation of $20 at filmnoirfoundation.org, you'll receive an annual subscription to The Best Writing on Noir Available Today and one of the most cutting-edge interactive multimedia cinema publications in the world. All donations go toward the FNF's mission of preserving and restoring classic noir films, and here on the podcast we'll be talking with many of the e-magazine writers and editors about their Noir City contributions. And before we get to our guest for this episode, a brief introduction to your host. I live in the Washington, D.C. area, and I've been attending the Noir City Festival in San Francisco every year since 2007. I've also been to the Noir City Hollywood Festival a few times, and I'm a loyal attendee of the Noir City, D.C. Festival, which takes place right here in my neighborhood each October. We're planning on releasing new podcast episodes once a month. And now, let's get to our inaugural guest. Our very first guest on Noir Talk is Eddie Muller. He is the founder and president of the Film Noir Foundation, the author of numerous books about film noir, the host of noir festivals and screenings all over the world, and his overall role is aptly summed up as the czar of noir. Eddie, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having the program. Yeah, this is, uh, I think, definitely going to be a lot of fun and uh, got a lot of stuff to get to. But we start off, unfortunately, on a sad note with the recent passing of Robert Osborne. And he was, of course, the host of Turner Classic Movies ever since the channel debuted back in 1994. So, Eddie, you got to know Robert a little bit. Um, what can you tell us about meeting him and working with him? Well, yes, it is very sad. And uh, it, was a, it was a strange experience. Um, having uh, my new the new noir alley show on tcm having it debut uh basically hours before robert passed away uh it, it just was <laughs> tempered my excitement somewhat to say the least um but what i can what i can tell you about robert is that he was even better in person than he was on television uh he was just a really wonderful guy and um, you know, a lot of times you see people on TV and you think, um, you know, well, this guy's got a team. 
behind him and uh, somebody's writing all this for him or something. And, and while there's obviously some truth to that because Robert did so much on TCM, um, I have seen him in action, you know, on the set, and he was totally in control of everything, and he knew so much. It was just, you know, this encyclopedic knowledge of movie history and uh, and was just a really, really nice, generous person. And, um, yeah, he will he will definitely be missed. I, I always referred to him as the Walter Cronkite of American cinema because he just seemed like the most trustworthy guy in the world. If you wanted somebody to tell you the history of American movies, you wanted Robert Osborne fulfilling that role, just like you wanted Walter Cronkite telling you the news of the day and putting it in some kind of context, because it, it just felt exactly right. And uh, that's why I think that Robert is is actually irreplaceable. And it was very sad to see him uh, to see him go. Yeah, the, the two things you mentioned about him, I was going to say, are the two things I noticed in all of the tributes to him and all the comments that people made after he passed were, one, that he was the nicest person anyone ever met, and two, that his knowledge was encyclopedic, not just about all the old classic Hollywood movies, but he also knew all the people from old Hollywood, and he knew everything there was to know about all the people from old Hollywood. So those two yes. things together seem to really sum him up. And I guess um, I assume what happened was when he got to know all the old Hollywood people and all his years there, because he was so genuine and so trustworthy, they they realized that in, in an industry that's uh, kind of short on trust in a lot of circumstances, they realized right. that they could trust him and they could tell him anything because it was never going to be for him about gossip or tearing people down or anything like that. It was always about the love he had for the movies and for the work they had done and how much it meant for people who go to the movies for fans. So they realized, I think that if they, whatever they told him would go in that direction, he would just share how much uh, their work meant to him and meant to all the fans. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely true. And uh, I mean, as testimony to that, I know that, you know, he maintained friendships with a lot of these, uh, these performers, actors and actresses. I, I mean, he was very, very good friends with them. I'm, I'm uh, friends with Diane Baker, the actress Diane Baker, and and she was one of Bob's best friends. And so she would always say, you know, I was in New York, I had dinner with Bob, and she would kind of give me an update on how he was doing uh, health wise. And um, you know, these were genuine friendships. They had nothing to do with, uh, you know. <laughs> the way in the so often in the business, it's people like maintaining a friendship for professional reasons. Uh, everybody was friends with Bob just because he was a he was a great guy. And uh, yes, I I I you know I'm not going to say that I was a close friend of his, but I felt like he was very accepting of me as a colleague. Uh, there are some some wonderful things that he did for me to make me feel very welcome at TCM, uh, you know, inviting me to come to like little private dinners that he would have with people at these events. And, uh, I would, I will always cherish that. And, uh, I'm, I mean it seriously when I have said that, uh, you know, I learned more from just spending, uh, 15 or 20 minutes on a stage with Bob 
introing a movie, I, I learned more than I, than I had learned in years doing this stuff on my own. You know, it's just like, wow, this is how you do things gracefully and, and simply and elegantly. And, uh, and he did this not only in, with an audience, but he would do this with every single person he met individually. He had a way of making them feel like they were the only person in the room. But at the same time, I could see, like, behind the curtain how he was keeping it moving. Like, he wouldn't stop. <laughs> you know, he'd give them time and talk to them, but he was moving forward to the next thing that he had to do. Uh, it's hard to do, you know, and uh, he, he, was, he was the best at it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an, uh, just a huge loss for all classic movie lovers, for sure. And with TCM, though, thanks largely to him for all these years, it's, um, it's been very successful and still going strong. And as you mentioned, you are one of the people who's going to be continuing to host movies on there after his loss. So you have the Noir Alley series that's just started, where you're introducing a different right. noir film every Sunday morning. So how's that been going so far? <laughs> well, it's been going spectacularly well. Um, I don't quite understand it because, I mean, okay, a little peek behind the curtain here, you know. I mean, my work for the first 13 weeks of Noir Alley is done. I mean, I've recorded it. It's done, right? right. So it's not like a live thing when it comes on yeah. uh, on Sundays for me. But apparently, you know, it obviously is for other people. And I have been informed that... Um, it you know the show is both of the first two installments of the show have trended on Twitter. Right now, I'm gonna I'm gonna confess right now I don't I don't even know what that means. Right, because I don't I'm not on Twitter. I don't do any of that stuff. Uh, but TCM is apparently thrilled by the fact that um, you know people are tweeting. Right, which kills me because it's like. Like, is that what you're doing? Don't do that. I mean, see, I'm the last guy that, you know, I I'm, would be the one saying, put your phone down, damn it. <laughs> right. movie. You know? Yeah. Uh, but apparently this is in lieu of ratings because, you know, TCM does not, uh, there are no ratings for TCM because they don't have advertising. You know, that that's, yeah. I don't know that people understand this too well that, you know, people say, I wonder how the ratings are for your show. <laughs> the TCM doesn't have ratings because they don't set ad rates, because they don't have advertising. Right. You know, Nielsen ratings and that kind of stuff, the sole purpose of that is to set ad prices by determining how many households are tuned in. But if you don't have ads, which thankfully TCM does not have, uh, except for their own products and things, right. um, then you're not going to have ratings. So. They they gauge how popular something is, I guess, by social media reaction to it, which to me is odd because I, why would you want to be on social media while you're watching watching a movie, right? <laughs> right. So uh, whatever, I, I'm not advocating saying that I, I don't do that social media thing, especially when I'm watching a movie, right? Uh, but I will, I will tell you that, you know, my own sense of their commitment to the show and their commitment to me, uh, was made abundantly clear when I walked onto that set and it was this beautiful, you know, thing that they had created just for this show. And, uh, I, I couldn't have been more thrilled. I mean, that was really exciting. 
so I'm I'm happy about that, and I'm I'm extremely happy that TCM is uh, is allowing me to exert my personality on the show and and make suggestions about things I want to do. And uh, at some point, we'll have guests on the show. Uh, we kind of hit the deck running and the building of the set and everything. We had to get on the air. In the first few weeks, we don't we weren't able to arrange to have guests, but we're working on that now. So uh, it, it's all very exciting, and I, it, it it seems that the public is responding uh, very positively, despite the fact that it's on on Sunday mornings, which is something that I've gotten a lot of feedback about. Like, why? Why <laughs> is it on Sunday morning? You know? Right. What's your opinion about that? Does does the time spot seem odd to you? Uh, well, it's not so bad for me because I'm on the East Coast, so 10 a.m. on Sundays is is okay. But for West Coast, certainly like 7 a.m. It's bright and early for film noir. <laughs> yeah, I uh, you know I doubt that I will. You won't be live tweeting. But, um, uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, well, who knows? Who knows? I mean, I say I don't do it, but you know. It, it maybe once or twice it would be fun to you know I don't have an account or anything right. for Twitter so yeah I would I if I got one it would be solely for that purpose right just to to see what that's all about you know yeah to, maybe I'll get it just to reprimand people <laughs> like <laughs> right. why why are you doing this watch the movie don't you know you're not paying attention right no, yeah <laughs> I'd be like the bad school teacher you know rapping them on the knuckles for tweeting <laughs> right. stop tweeting while you're watching this yeah. movie. You're gonna miss the best part, you know? right? There was a funny one. I oh, well, lots of great tweets on it for the first couple of weeks, but one I pulled and wanted to mention here. There was um, for the Maltese Falcon for the first Noir Alley show that you did. So there was a tweet from at Jess Epstein who quotes from the movie and then adds her own comment. So she quotes, "You aren't exactly the kind of person you pretend to be, are you?" Everyone to everyone on Twitter <laughs> was her take on it. <laughs> so I think that's pretty accurate. So maybe yes, maybe Dashiell indeed. Hammett foresaw social media 80 years before it happened, you know, a man ahead of his time. <laughs> yes, the duplicity of all those characters. Yes, I, I feel that way on, on social media a lot of the time. You right. know, I, needless to say, you get, you know, you, you, you get a public persona and, and people, you know, uh, you, you get a big upsurge in friend requests on the on Facebook and stuff. And, and it has really gotten to the point where if, if I sense that this is not a real identity, I just dismiss it because right. I, I can't, I can't deal with people, you know, just as you pointed out with that Hammett quote, you know, <laughs> uh, hiding behind this mask. And then I, so, because it, you know, it makes me a little uncomfortable because everybody knows who I am. Yes. Right. Cause I mean, there, there I am. Right. But if you are asking to associate with me and I don't know who you are, right. then I'm at a disadvantage and that that makes me a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Anyway. Well, the trend so far with uh, with Twitter, it's and I'm pretty active on there, and it's it's definitely fun, the people watching TCM movies in general on there and so far, specifically for Noir Alley. Uh, there's a lot of really fun comments, and it's a great community, and people who are really, really into these movies and really enjoy them. And you get a mix of yeah. people who know the movies really well and have seen it many times and are just waiting for their favorite parts to talk about them, and then you get other people who've never seen it and are reacting to it in real time, which is a lot of fun, too. Right. Um, well, you know, this uh, the, hey, guy, this this applies directly to uh, 
you know, my experience um, putting on live shows, you know, and, and getting people into the theater. I think that's why the, you know, the Noir City Film Festivals that I've done have been so successful. I attribute it exactly or precisely to finding a, a good middle ground between people who are really, really dedicated, hardcore lovers of these films and people who are experiencing it for the first time and creating an environment in which both of those people are satisfied with the experience, right? Yeah. Because I, the one thing I really don't like is when you get people who are really, really into this stuff who are very condescending yeah. to people who are coming to it for the first time. Right. I just, I just don't understand that. Like this, I, I need to impress upon everybody how much I know and how much smarter I am than everybody else. And like, what took you so long to figure it out? I, there, there's absolutely no upside to that. There's, yeah. there's nothing. There's no advantage to it. Right. So if, if the goal is to have people appreciate these movies so that there are more of them available, that you can see them more often, that maybe Netflix won't drop them from their inventory so right. quickly, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff, then you have to be welcoming. You know, you have to throw the, the tent flaps open and say, you're welcome here. If you've never seen Double Indemnity before, come on in. You know, yeah. I want to show it to you. Right. Yeah, and I wanted to ask, and that relates then to one other thing about Noir Alley I wanted to get to is just what's your um, approach been for how you have chosen the movies? Because the programming, it's already been set, the schedule, I think, all the way through the end of next January. So is it, that you're, is it that you're trying to balance that of some of the really big famous ones with some lesser known ones that uh, people who are a little newer to it probably haven't seen? Well, it's... Honestly, it's not that different than when you program a film festival. The one thing that I think people need to bear in mind, and I don't think I'm t telling anything out of school here in regards to the way TCM operates, is that you know TCM does not have a bottomless reservoir of films to show. And even if something has appeared on TCM before, it does not mean that they can show it again. I mean, every TCM licenses movies to show, and all those films are being shown under the terms of a licensing agreement, which may be for a year, two years, six months, who knows, and for a certain amount of money that TCM has to pay for the privilege of showing the movie. I, I think people are sorely mistaken when they think that TCM actually owns these movies and can just show whatever they want whenever they want to. That yeah. is not the case. Right. So for this first year of Noir Alley, I mean, Charlie Tabish, the VP of programming, just gave me a, a rather expansive list of titles and said, you can feel free to draw from these. Okay. Right? Because right. It, was, it was films that he knew they could get access to or that they needed to show because you know, show them now because the terms of the uh, licensing agreement will expire at a certain point. So if you want to show it, show it now. Right. Um, you know, that, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, so they, I was able to show whatever I wanted to show within reason. And as we go along and the show establishes itself, I, I would hope that um, I get to have even more say-so 
in the programming. That that's what I would hope, you know. And and I have no doubt that will happen because I have a really really good relationship with Charlie. I mean, he is he is really the reason. I mean, Charlie and is the reason I'm on TCM and and Bob <laughs> when Charlie said we should really have this guy on the network I think Bob sort of signed off on that and said, "Yeah, I like yeah. this guy. He's you know he's okay. I have right. no problem with that." And um, because, as I think I may have mentioned to you at some point, I mean, I actually did Bob's own film festival with him before I did anything with TCM. So, I mean, my relate my relationship with Bob Osborne extends back even further than my relationship with Turner Classic Movies. Yeah, um, but. Uh, you know, Charlie also, like when I do uh, my appearances at the Turner Classic Movies Film Festival in Hollywood, Charlie will say, what do you want to do? What do you want to show? You know, I mean, he is always soliciting suggestions for programming. And uh, I know we'll, we'll talk about the festival coming up in, in, further on. But, um, you know, Charlie listens to what you have to put out there. And then he brilliantly balances everything, you know, the, the artistic side, the, the feedback from the people, the business side, the, all that. All of these things have to be taken into account when you're programming, whether it's for TCM or for your own film festival or whatever. It's not just as simple as saying, I heard about this movie, let's show it. Right. Yeah, you, you would hope that you can do that at some point, but it's not as easy as that. That makes a lot of sense, and that, yeah, that sounds great that you uh, have that relationship going with TCM is terrific. And you just mentioned the TCM Film Festival. Wanted to get to that as well. So that's going to be in early April. You're going to be presenting uh, one of the movies there, right? I'm going to be presenting several. Oh, a several few of them. Okay. There. Uh, but I, <laughs> at the time we're talking, I don't have my full uh, agenda okay. made up yet. So I, I know that I will be presenting. Um, uh, you know the the theme this year is comedy, right? So of course, if if you're known as the noir guy, what are you going to do for that, right? right? Well, obviously, one of the things I'm going to do is present Preston Sturgis's Unfaithful, Unfaithful, which yours, is like right. the great, yeah, the great noir comedy. So right. uh, I will present that, which was my idea. Yeah, I mean, I told Charlie, let's show Unfaithfully Yours, you know. Right. Uh, and I'm also going to be presenting the underworld story, not a comedy, right. uh, but I'm very excited about that. And that is a film that the Film Noir Foundation preserved. And so we're going to be showing our preserved 35 millimeter print uh, at the festival. I will be presenting that. I'm pretty yeah. excited about it. And I, I'm also, I think, doing a um, like a seminar hosting a s on... Um, film preservation and uh, distribution of restored and preserved films in like the digital age. Yeah. So I'm going to be talking to people from uh, Flickr Alley, who we, we did those two uh, Blu-ray projects uh, for Woman on the Run and Too Late for Tears with Flickr right. Alley, and uh, Kino Lorber and Milestone Films. So, uh, you know, representatives from those three uh companies will be in a discussion about like how do you how do you make a go of it uh business wise uh preserving films that aren't particularly well known you know that are marginal titles in the history of cinema um and i'm very much looking for that because having uh 
you know, gotten into this business now that the Foundation has put out a couple of its restorations on Blu-ray, uh, you know, it's it's a challenge trying yeah. to. <laughs> it's I say I was going to say trying to make money in this business when I really meant to say trying to not lose money in this business. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, is is a challenge. That sounds like a great uh, event to go to, and um, just and, I'm, to and I'm sure, and I'm sure there will be, I'm sure there will be other other things that I'll be doing at the TCM festival. But th- this is the way these, th- you know, they invite so many people. There are so many guests. There are so many screenings right. that it's it. You'd be surprised, like how. It's all coming together right up to the very last minute. Right. And and even then, I'll share, and it'll be opening night, and, you know, I'll be handed a sheet when I check in that is like, okay, all this has changed. Now you're interviewing this person, and you're going to do that instead, and right. you're going to have to go introduce this movie instead of that. I mean, keeping it all balanced uh, is is amazing. They do an amazing job of it. I mean, when I do my festivals, it's nothing, right? It's one screen, one film screening after another. This is multiple screens in four days and just all kinds of stuff going on. Yeah. And uh, it's um, I get run a little ragged, but I'm not complaining. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds... It's, uh, I've never been to that festival. I'd love to go uh, one of these years. It sounds like a terrific experience. It's a trip. I mean, there's nothing like it because doing so much to see... But of course, uh, everybody, I'm not going to say they complain, but the challenge is you are going to miss something. Right. You know, you're going to have to, and I look at it like a big, uh, you know, Rorschach test or something. It's like, well, you're going to figure out who you really are (laughs) because you're going to have to make that hard decision of, do I want to rebel that a cause or do I want to see, you know, the proud one or what, what am I going to go see right now? What matters right. to me? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, an embarrassment of riches, I'm sure. Always lots of great stuff to see there. Exactly. Also wanted to mention before we get to the Noir City festivals, the Noir City Annual is available now, which is the uh, compendium of Noir City e-magazine articles from the previous year. And the e-magazine, as I mentioned at the top of the show, is available to uh, donors to the uh, to the Film Noir Foundation. So the Noir City right. Annual, the annual is the one way to get these articles in a bound form, in printed form. So, um, right. What's uh, any highlights from this particular uh, edition from this last year, twenty sixteen? You want to mention? Well, there was a lot of great stuff. The the thing about the annual that just amazes me is. The, the roster of writers we now have is so extraordinarily good that um, sometimes I'm just putting together an issue of the magazine, because I still act as the editor and publisher of the magazine, along with Vint Keenan and, and Steve Cronenberg. You know, I, I have the master editorial schedule together, and uh, it, it kills me to see just, you know, when we get stuff by Imogen Smith, and Jake Hinkson and Vince Keenan and Kelly Vance and Sharon Knoll and, you know, Brian Light, all these people are just, they're, they're making such extraordinary contributions. And even, even I kind of get blown away by, look at all the stuff that we still have to say about film noir, you know, it's right. kind of remarkable. Like the last issue was the TV noir issue. 
which is something we've been looking forward to doing for a while, because it is the answer to the question, you know, well, what happened to film noir? Why did it end? And it's like, well, because it became TV noir, really. Right. Uh, and, and that issue was great at tracking that shift from the movie studios and how people who were so adept at making B films for the studios suddenly had entire careers that went on for decades more. You know, like a guy like Joseph Lewis, people are like, oh, it's a shame his career ended when it did. And it was like, well, his career was just starting because he really made all things for TV, right? Right. And that's where Ida Lupino ended up and, you know, a bunch of these people. So, yeah. Um, it, it's all kind of fascinating, but yeah, there's all, there's all kinds of stuff. I, I mean, I can't pick out particular things that I, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in love with more than anything else. I'm for me, you know, that that's like asking a baseball manager to say, you know, pick the guy on your team that you is doing the best job. It's like, I, I'm not going to do that. You know, right. uh, the, the lineup is so good now. And I just feel so great at being able to, talk to writers of this caliber and say what would you like to contribute and they come up with three or four great ideas uh you know every year and it's like this is fantastic and and you know they're really well researched and um are, are very much adding to the uh the history of this genre uh in, in a way that i think a lot of people didn't expect you know five or six years ago it's like haven't haven't they said everything there is to say about this right it's like nope just uh you know it's funny it, it never ends so just before i came on uh to talk to you i was doing research for an essay i'm writing about uh, this todd browning silent film called outside the law and amazingly you know i had never seen a movie with this lead actress priscilla dean and you know, here it is, all all these years I've been doing this, and this was something completely new to me. And she's completely new to me, and so imagine my surprise when I learned that she, like, specialized in female criminals in these movies that Todd Browning made in the, you know, from, like, 1919 to 1922 or 23. Like, she she played this character that was unique in movies, you know, like the, the gangster mall or even the mastermind in some cases, uh, and she was unlike any other actress of that time. So, again, this is something completely new So, yeah. uh, to me. So there's, there's like, no end to this stuff. It, it amazes me how we keep uh, drilling down deeper and finding all these riches that, uh, you know, might have been forgotten about were it not for all the new ways to access this material. Uh, which is just fantastic. So the Noir City Annual overall, that's available on Amazon, right? Well, uh, we can provide a link to that uh, in the podcast notes. And Yes, um, yes. And the, uh, the only way you can get the annual is either at one of the Noir City festivals or by buying it um, on Amazon. And when you buy it on Amazon, I mean, it, you're, you're basically getting it from us. I mean, we, you know, we supply Amazon with the copies, but... We, um, because it's a, you know, we're a nonprofit, we, we don't offer a discount through Amazon right. for the book because we, we need to make our money back and, and then a little bit, you know, for the cause. Right. Um, but, but that's it. Otherwise, you know, sign up for the quarterly, 
which is different because not everything that's in the quarterly magazine makes it into the anthology at the right. end of the year. And, of course, the anthology is in black and white, and even though it is film noir, um, the the magazine, you know, to me, the magazine is, like, made to be looked at on a tablet, you know, something because yeah. it's just beautiful and, you know, great color artwork, the posters and everything. And, um, and, and Michael Cronenberg, the designer, is great at, like, bringing in all these little interactive features in the magazine so like you can see trailers for the movies in some cases if it's a public domain movie we will provide a link so you can watch the entire movie uh you know as you're you read about the film and then boom touch the picture and you're you're able to watch the movie so um it's it's very very much fun putting the magazine together i i really cherish that and i hope i get to continue doing it for a long time and all the proceeds from that, from signing up for the, uh, subscribing for the magazine or from the Noir City Annual, all those proceeds are going back to restoring movies, right? And the preservation. That oh, the absolutely. Film Noir Foundation absolutely. does, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, that's our thing. You know, we really, we operate pretty close to the bone. And, um, you know, we don't, we don't spend a lot of money. We have no offices. <laughs> you know, right. there isn't a lot of overhead. So we proudly, when we uh, submit, you know, for a grant proposal, when we submit a grant proposal to like the Hollywood Foreign Press or something, uh, we we proudly submit our financials to show that you know we're not spending the money on anything other than restoring movies. You know, that's it. So uh, you know, putting out the magazine, staging the festivals, there are costs, of course, involved with all those things, but. Everything else is it just goes right into the fund to restore films. With the E magazine, also just interesting to mention, I think um, so. It, it got started more than ten years ago, maybe a dozen years ago, as a newsletter. Right? It was the you were calling right. it the Noir City Sentinel, and it was in um, uh, you designed it as like newspaper form, and it right. started out right. as what three or four pages per issue, right? And now you've got yeah. a magazine that's over sometimes a hundred pages per issue with uh, all these multimedia links, like you were mentioning. Yes, it has it has grown substantially, and uh, once again, I I uh, give all the credit to these, you know, these fantastic writers who never run out of interesting ideas to contribute, and and I'm also really proud of the fact that a lot of the writers, a, well, uh, speaking of someone like Imogen Sarah Smith, who had written for some uh, film publications back in New York, she's based in New York, but she really was you know, writing regularly for the Noir City magazine, I'm going to say like five, six years ago. And since then, she has really uh, developed into one of the leading film writers in the country. And now her stuff is in sight and sound, and she's doing all kinds of work uh, for Criterion writing. You know, she just wrote an essay for the Blu-ray release of Mildred Pierce, and she wrote one for In a Lonely Place. And, you know, I think Imogen is one of the, one of the best film writers in the world period, whether it's about noir or anything else. And, and I'm just thrilled that, you know, she's loyal to the Noir City magazine and we talk all the time about stories that she's going to contribute and she's, she's just wonderful. And other, you know, like Jake Hinkson, you know, in addition to writing these essays and things, you know, they're both novelists now. You know, Jake has become a very, very well-known noir novelist. He, you know, they invite him to come over and do book tours in France and uh, Vince and his wife Rosemary just came out with a. They're working on a series of crime novels with Edith Head, 
as the as the crime solver, Edith Head is sort of a character solving right. crimes in old Hollywood. Uh, they're really really good. So um, you know the pedigree of the people contributing to this magazine is is pretty exceptional. That's right. And so that's Vincent Rosemary Keenan who write as Renee Patrick, right, with the right. Edith Head right. novels. We're planning on having many of those uh, those writers here on the podcast uh, in the coming months. So oh, that, that should be well, yeah, be fantastic. Great. And and yes, they. Excellent idea. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know it yet, but <laughs> that's what we're we're looking to do. And the last thing I wanted to mention with the, the Noir City Sentinel, one of my favorite things about it, I remember when it was still very short, just a three or four page newsletter was at the top right in the newspaper tabloid form, you had it as it would say uh, in all bold letters, no stocks, no sports, all noir. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so, yes. We don't do that on the magazine anymore, but I still I still do that on the tabloid program for the festival in San Francisco, right. and we still use that same design and that same layout that, that has the uh, no stocks, no sports, all noir. Right. <laughs> so just in case someone picks it up looking for stock tips, they're bound to be disappointed. <laughs> you can only imagine how bad they be in a noir <laughs> publication. So the theme of the festivals this year that you've put together is the big knockover, or heist movies. What you've done this year is expand the time frame that the movies are from in a big way, where you're going from the 1940s all the way up to very recent movies, and uh, mixed in with a lot of foreign films as well, which you've done in some of your previous festivals. So what's, uh, what's been your approach for putting that together, or what was the, uh, the overall idea there? Well, the, the inspiration for this festival was the realization that when it comes to crime films, it's heist movies that have uh, expanded the most over the years, right? I was a little surprised, and when I saw that, right, and I said, man, they make a lot of heist movies now. If you're going to make a crime film now, it's probably going to be a heist picture. And so I went back. In, in my research to say, where did that start? I mean, what were like the first examples of a heist picture? And it, there really weren't many. I mean, until the film noir era, the only kind of heist movies were like Robin Hood stories, you know, like Arsene Lupin and these characters who stole from the rich. They were like suave comic book characters who stole jewels from rich people and blah, blah, blah. There were no movies about bank robbers or, you know, I mean, Larceny Incorporated or something like that, right. you know, playing it as a gag. Yeah, much more comedic. Uh, but, story. you know, until, um, until something like High Sierra, which was clearly about a gang of thieves, right, robbers, yeah. uh, you really didn't see this. Uh, I mean, there are, there are isolated examples, but it really wasn't until, you know, the killer's uh, Criss Cross, The Asphalt Jungle, those were like caper movies and heist movies. And then in the 50s, it just became this huge thing. And, uh, and, and then, you know, Rafifi, which is still probably the best of all of them. But uh, the reason I broke out of the, the single time frame for the films is that, you know, having seen them and then previewing them again, 
to, to decide whether I wanted to program them. It occurred to me that if you showed a bunch of heist movies from the 1950s, by the 10th day of the festival, it's like, I've seen this movie, right? <laughs> I, yeah, it, and I'm not doing favors by showing them in such a concentrated batch, you know? Yeah. By, by the, the first four or five, you're going to love. The 20th one, you're going you're gonna to be tired of it. So, so my idea was, let's make it interesting by moving through time chronologically and showing how heist films changed and developed and how cinematic styles changed and developed. And so using the heist as like this backbone for the whole thing, you got to get your story, you know, uh, out of the whole thing. And, and I thought it was tremendously successful. I, um, you know, there were one or two people who were like, well, you violated everything because this isn't even film noir. And obviously they didn't read my introductory <laughs> note to the festival. I sort of explained, yeah, I'm going, I'm coloring way outside the lines here, but with a purpose. And I hope that you can see the value of this. And, you know, I, I got tremendous feedback in San Francisco and, uh, you know, just as positive when we took the show to Seattle. Yeah. And uh, it was a little bit shorter in Seattle, uh, but people really, really dug it. I, I confess to, they buy a pass and they intend to come seven nights in a row. You know, I'm, I'm going to cater to those people. I have to accept the, the, you know, the back chat from somebody who comes once and yeah. says, hey, I heard this was a film noir festival and this movie wasn't really film noir. And it's like, well, you picked the wrong night. What can, <laughs> what can I say? You know, if you'd come in the asphalt jungle and crisscross, you wouldn't be saying that. But when you came to see, you know, Charlie Varick and the taking of Bellum 123, I'm going to tell you right up, that's not film noir, right? That's Walter right. Matthau noir. But there was a reason for it. I mean, it all made sense in the context of the overall festival. One thing some people maybe were saying, or you said that you heard chatter from some people, was complaining about how some of the movies were recent, or like, oh, it's too recent. This is supposed to be only older movies. But with many of them, like the ones, some of the ones you mentioned, Charlie Varick, Taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3, those movies now, even they're from the 70s, those are f more than 40 years old now. <laughs> In a very real sense, those are old movies now. Yeah, Just because I, someone I, remembers I, when it came out originally, that doesn't mean it's not old. <laughs> That's absolutely true. Uh, I when I introduced Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, right, which is uh -huh. from 1974, I came out on stage and I said, "If you think this is a new movie <laughs> or a recent film, Clint Eastwood would be very happy to hear that, since he was 44 years old when he made this movie, right? Right. <laughs> and now he's 86 years old, right? So. Yeah. Um, yeah, Jeff Bridges was 25 in that movie. And right. yes, you've seen Jeff Bridges recently, and you know, he's not a kid anymore. Uh, so you're absolutely right. I mean, this is something that has become really, really obvious to me as I get older. You know, it's like, wow, what we thought were old movies are no longer old movies. I mean, it, this is, or, you know, I just don't, or as Martin Scorsese says, you know, there, there are no old movies, right? I mean, yeah. There's no such thing. If the movie's good, it's, 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 it's the movie, right? I mean, what does right. old have to do with it? So, uh, you know, that's the way I look at it. But what those people really mean when they say that is they're going because they want to see a movie 
where uh, there were self-imposed restrictions. So right. there's no uh, there's no foul language. There's no gruesome violence. There's no explicit sex. That's no. that is how they are characterizing a new movie versus an old movie. And to me, it's like, well, I get that, and I understand that there. You know, if you don't want to see that, then don't come see the you know the movie from. 199 don't come see sexy beast which we showed right right i mean you don't want to see that movie if you're offended by foul language yeah or or graphic violence right but i mean isn't it more interesting if you're really coming to see a whole bunch of movies that they you learn something by being exposed to all of these different cultures and all these different time periods in such a concentrated way to me, it makes for such a compelling story of cinema when you do that, as opposed to just, look, I just want to eat steak and potatoes and string beans. That's all I want to eat. Right. <laughs> don't, don't give me any of this other food. I don't want it. It's like, well, okay, that's your, that's your business, but don't complain to me when my restaurant decides to serve other stuff as well. Right. right? I mean, I'll still serve you the steak and potatoes, but, you know, don't give me grief about it. And another um, theme, uh, a common theme with many of the movies you showed in the uh, with this big knockover theme of the heist movies is so many of them have these really amazing ensemble casts where there's just a bunch of terrific actors and none of them have that much bigger a role than the other, but they're all together as a team going on a mission or trying to pull off a big job or whatever. And you get to see all these great different personalities interacting with interacting with each other, and that's a that's a terrific through line through a lot of these movies. I think in this festival. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And don't you think that when you talk about caper films, I think it's a total uh, misread when people think, oh, they're they're like intricately plotted movies. Well, yes, on the one hand, but I think the reason for their existence is because they're character movies. And and it's this incredible cast of disparate characters that makes it so compelling. And I, I honestly believe that's what motivates the writers of these stories, create all of these different characters. Because, you know, and, and that's why, to me, you know, heist movies are, like, intrinsically noir. Because what's, you know, what's the noir story? It's like a desperate person is going to do some desperate act, take a shortcut to easy street. And yet there's some human failing that screws up the whole thing. That's like a total noir story. But the thing that makes the heist noirs so much, you know, I'm not going to say better, but what distinguishes them is exactly what you said. Whereas it's a story about a loner in isolation when it's double indemnity or the postman always rings twice. When it's the asphalt jungle or the killing or Kansas city confidential, it's a bunch of people, and and it's like the more the merrier, <laughs> you know. Right. You just get that much more fabulous stuff. I, I have to tell you one quick story. When I showed um, the killing in Seattle, it yeah. was such a great screening because I asked the people before the show, like, how many people have not seen this movie? And I got to tell you, I, I'm going to say seventy percent of the audience had not seen okay. the killing. And, and I, I can't tell you how great it makes me feel to present to these people 
their first viewing of this film, and it's in a movie theater with a bunch of people who really love this stuff, and it was a beautiful print of the film, and it's like that, that movie played like gangbusters. And, and I always, it makes me so thrilled because to me, this is what cinema is all about. If you're, a, if you're an artist, you know, I could only laugh and think, man, if Stanley Kubrick was here to watch this audience react like this to this movie, all these years later, after everything he'd gone through, after The Shining and the failure of Napoleon and Eyes Wide Shut and all, it's like, dude, Look at the killing play in 2017. Incredible. Yeah, Love that's, that. That's great. <laughs> and there was, um, related to the ensemble casts, and uh, from the Seattle Satellite Festival, there was uh, some good Twitter feedback, too. So one person tweeting uh, at the account, at MyNatterings, which is a nice Twitter ID, said, <laughs> one, of, one of the great joys of Noir City is seeing so many great character actors chewing film like gum. See the Brinks job. <laughs> Oh, yes, yes. There is a lot of scene chewing in that movie, for sure. <laughs> a lot of great uh, well, actors. Yeah, there, well, uh, Peter Falk could chew gum <laughs> and film and scene like nobody else, right? Right. He's fantastic. But, you know, that was a classic case in point. I mean, I, mean, I, I really, really wanted to show the Brinks job because not only do I think that Friedkin himself understood that movie because it was a failure and it reminds him of a, a bad time in his life. William Friedkin, uh, right, the director. The actors in that movie are so extraordinary and the production design of that film is so fantastic. And we were able to show like a perfect 35 yes. millimeter print of it. And not to say this over and over again, but I am in a pretty unique position presenting these festivals and traveling around the country and seeing them with these different audiences, the incredible joy that not only I get, but that the audience gets in sort of rediscovering a film like that um, is, is fantastic. And it, to me, it speaks to something specifically about the cinema, you know, uh, more than any other art form, the cinema is something that, can be rediscovered. I mean, it, film may be made and it just doesn't have its time until like 20 years down the road or 30 years, whatever. Music can be rediscovered like that, but a lot of the arts, that's not really going to happen. But movies, they're so immediate. What they really need is, you know, somebody to come along and re vive it re-establish it you know here it is in a theater right. it looks just like it looked when it came out in 1978 and you know I, it it's amazing when people leave the theater and they're like why why did i not know about this movie why i never heard of this movie you know and and um i like that i like yeah. being able to do that yeah and the audiences, I mean, when, when you're able to bring in the big audiences, especially in San Francisco, but at these other satellite festivals as well, like you mentioned in uh, Seattle with The Killing, the bigger the audience, the more people are into it. It just elevates any movie that, uh, that you can show. It just uh, makes it a better experience for yes. everyone. Yes, and I have to say, I really um, appreciate audiences for the Noir City festivals because they really love their movies, you know, and they're very respectful and... A lot of times, you, if you go to a big movie and it's a packed house, yeah, there's a buzz, but sometimes it can be a little 
negative, you know, a drawback because there's just, you know, so many people in there that you're going to get a certain percentage of them on their phones and talking and acting like it's their living room or something, which drives me absolutely insane. And so I'm very appreciative of the Noir City crowds because by and large, they, they don't do that. And, you know, and I tell people, if, if there are people being rude, let me know. You know, because I'll call them out from the stage, <laughs> yeah. you know, because uh, I don't want that. I don't want that in my show. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And the audiences at all the festivals, uh, San Francisco, and I go every year to here in D.C. and I've been to Hollywood and the audiences are always terrific. One more thing about one of the movies in the festival I wanted to mention. Uh, so one of the foreign films you showed is called Four Ways Out which is an Italian movie from the early 50s, a really interesting mix of things. It's a very much a neorealist movie, which was the big artistic yeah. movement in Italian films at the time, but it's also a heist movie combined with it. So that was a great dynamic with that. And I just wanted to mention that at that screening in San Francisco, I was there with uh, my family and my uh, my beloved mother had a great comment about it. There's um, the scenes after they've got the money from the heist, which happens at the very beginning of the movie, and back then, the some of the Italian lira notes were enormous. Like they were so big, you couldn't fit them in a wallet. You couldn't fit them in your pocket. They had to have these big suitcases. So my mom, my mom laughed and she said, "Ah, that was back when money was really money." <laughs> yes, exactly. Or money, or money was placemats or something. Because they they were they were just colossal. I I remember the audience having a good laugh when they're stuffing all the bills into the suitcases at at the heist, and it's like, my God, they they need more suitcases. <laughs> Money's too big. Yeah, hard to get away with it when you can't actually carry the money anywhere. <laughs> well, I'm glad you liked that film. It was uh, yeah. it, it was quite an ordeal getting it uh, over to San Francisco from Rome, and. Uh, it, it paid off in the end. I, I thought that film was really fascinating precisely for the reasons you described. It really felt like, a, you know, it's an Italian version of the asphalt jungle in a way, you know, and it's it's obsessed, it's um, not obsessed, it's uh, concerned with the fate of the criminals after the robbery. They right. could care less about the robbery itself and how it's committed. It's just yeah. about the, the fate of each man, right. um, much like the Asphalt Jungle. But um, you're right. It's that very, very interesting intersection between uh, noir and neorealism, which, uh, which the Asphalt Jungle, in some respects, has a bit of that as well, uh, but much more so in Four Ways Out, which was... Um, uh, Federico Fellini was one of the screenwriters on that yes. film, and there are uh, there are certain passages in the film that I, I would bet my bottom dollar were written by Fellini. You know, the 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 scene on the streetcar where they're trying to get away, and uh, you know the the guy gets into the argument over his ticket, and that just that just felt so much like a Fellini scene to me. Right. Uh, it, it was really I I really enjoyed that film. Yeah, that was uh, that was a really interesting one, and I, I had never heard of that one. Although it had some some fairly big names, like you mentioned, Fellini writing it, and Gina Lalla Brigida was one of the actors uh, early in her career. So right, that was, and Guillermo Petri, uh, who uh, you know is not a you know particularly well known figure in the United States as far as writers, directors, and actor. He was also an actor, goes, uh, 
But um, you know what can this? This is how it works. You know, I was eating dinner around the corner from the theater in San Francisco at this wonderful Italian restaurant, and the proprietor says to me, "Hey, you're showing a Jeremy film. You know, I love that guy." And he like hands me two other of his <laughs> two other crime films on DVD. You know, uh -huh. says check these out. You might like these too. So. So people say, how do you learn about these films? It's like, well, that's that's how you learn, you know? Right. <laughs> okay, and with the Noir City Festivals, I also wanted to get into the poster for this year, which um, each <laughs> each year with the, uh, the festival in San Francisco and then all the satellite festivals, you pick a poster design and stick with it for all the... Um, for all the all the noir, noir city uh, festivals, and there is always a Ms. Noir City for each year, who is crowned <laughs> yes. for the San Francisco Festival, and she always has the starring role in the poster. And um, everyone can see that one. It's at noircity.com online. That's the official website for the uh, the Noir City festivals. So for this year, tell us a bit about the Ms. Noir City. Well, her name is Greer Sinclair, which is a very film noir actressy name to begin with. Uh, but I'm trying to think of how... Well, I met Greer uh, at last year's Noir City Festival, but we had been in touch somehow um, because I think she sent me a video or something. Somehow we connected on Facebook or something. And I think she was familiar with my books and the festival and all this. And she was coming to attend the San Francisco Art Institute, which was my alma mater. And, and I think that was sort of how we connected. She said, you know, I'm, I'm actually coming to San Francisco to study at the Art Institute. May, maybe we'll connect at some point. And then we did at the North City Film Festival. And, and I was kind of struck by how uh, knowledgeable she was about movies and how deeply interested she was in them and uh, and so it made it easy for me when it was time to do another poster. I mean, she's also really attractive. And I said, hey, Greer, let's just, you know, let's just do this. You, you, why don't you be on the poster? And uh, so far, nobody has turned me down when I've <laughs> asked them that. <laughs> right. Do you want to be on the poster? Uh, everybody I've asked so far has said yes. So, um, and she, she was great. She, uh, she's a terrific, I mean, she's an actress and a singer and all this stuff, but uh, also a very good model, which um, is not always easy because it can be difficult. Trying to create a poster is you're asking people to do things that are not, you know, strike poses that are not anything you do in your normal life. And, uh, and then do it a lot for several hours while we try to get the perfect image. And, and Greer was just fantastic. And uh, I, I was very, very happy with the way the poster turned out. Uh, it was funny because, you know, we always have a woman on the poster because, hey, I've learned a few lessons over the years on how to sell things, uh, you know, and I'm a fan of all those old movie posters and everything that were very sexy and provocative within good taste, you know. I was looking for a way to get the theme of this year's festival, the heist theme, across while still using our our trademark, you know, Ms. Noir City. And, you know, realistically, women don't figure very prominently in caper movies. They're a decoy or something, but they're not one of the criminal gang. Um, so we had to come up with an idea that somehow got this across. And so 
you know, she's robbing the safe. Obviously, it's some high society function or, you know, where she slipped away and is robbing the wall safe and, and you know, the, the lady of the house's room or something. And so I, it made me laugh when I, I'm like I told you earlier, I'm watching this movie Outside the Law, this old Todd Browning film. And that scene is in the film. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, I mean, exactly. Our poster is in that film. You know, uh, Priscilla Dean she takes the, the picture off the wall and there's the safe and the safe is, you know, and they steal the jewels out of the safe. And it's like, there you go. That's the scene that, in our poster. And then uh, you're also in the poster as well in uh, a picture that's <laughs> on the floor. I guess that was removed from the wall to reveal the safe and uh, is what it kind of looks like. And it's a stuffy British aristocrat <laughs> with a monocle. Well, I, I like to say I look, I look like Mr. Monopoly. <laughs> <laughs> so it's you posing but that was, for the... Uh, yeah. Now, that's my, my buddy Bill Selby is the art director on all of these posters, and we have a great time coming up with the ideas. And, um, and that was Bill's idea, because I said, such a great look. Let's just have her robbing a safe in a you know, at a high society party or something. And it's just simple and dynamic. And, and like, we'll put her in a, in a beam of a flashlight, like she's being caught, you know, in the act. And then I, and then I said, yeah, but I guess, I guess my streak of appearing in posters is over. And then Bill, said, Oh no, I got, <laughs> so he came up with then, the, he came he, up with the idea. He, for... Yeah. Bill, Bill came up with the idea of putting me in the, in the portrait that's taken off the wall to get at the safe. So right. that was, that was pretty clever. And uh, your appearance in the posters over the years usually involves either you're already dead or about to be <laughs> done in by the femme fatale who is uh, executing some devious plan. Yes, that is true. I mean, sometimes I'm just, it's like, where's Eddie? You got to look, you know, like, uh, I think it was number number seven or something where it's hitchhiker on the, on the road it's just my hand. You can see my hand is kind of sticking over the back seat of the car because she's killed me. And so you don't, but you don't know, you know, so she, uh, every, some, we try to put posters where there's a little more going on than you might see at first glance, you know, like on the new one, people don't always see the, the picture of me in the corner of the poster or they don't study the wallpaper, which yeah. has a real, film design in the wallpaper that was made just for the poster. Uh, but yeah, it, there's always, we have a lot of fun making the posters. And also wanted yep. to mention at the uh, festival, sometimes you have some special guests and there was one that was kind of a pop-up guest announced at the last moment in the San Francisco festival back in January, uh, a local <laughs> person, uh, personality, I guess, who had been in some of the movies. So uh, can you tell us about uh, how that happened? Yeah, that was pretty great. Al Nalbandian is a, he has been selling flowers in downtown San Francisco uh, at Union Square for I mean, like 50 years, maybe more. And, and his family was always in the business. I mean, for virtually a century, right? And um, it was one of my friends uh, in a local, uh, you know, regular at the festival, a guy named Bob Calhoun, who called me up and said, you know, Al's still around, you know, and he's in Once a Thief. That was the movie we were showing. Uh, in San Francisco, I tend to always look for a film set in San Francisco that I can show. And here was Once a Thief. It's a heist movie set in San Francisco in the 1960s. And then 
you know, Bob called me and said, you know, Al's still around. You should just have him come out and blow his mind. You know, and he's 90-something years old. And, uh, yes, his mind, his mind was blown <laughs> when he got this uh, incredibly great reception from a full house at the Castro. Uh, you know, he plays, a, he plays a drug dealer in the film, you know, and he appears very early in the movie. But I love stuff like that. I mean, I yeah. love that, especially in San Francisco, there's just this uh, unapologetically parochial thing in San Francisco where if there's any local person who's in the movie or anything, you know, the audience loves it and they go they go crazy and it, it it's it's good. It's a really good vibe. Just having him on stage and all the audience there knowing that, hey, this guy's gonna be in this movie that we're about to watch was uh And of course, you know you know, when stuff like that happens and it's very spontaneous and it's like you know, I'll just show up, it'll be great. So we, I will tell you something that happened that appeared to be totally spontaneous, but I knew it was going to happen. And and you don't you don't script it. You just know it's <laughs> going to happen. Is I said, somebody get a bouquet of flowers that we can give to Al, right? And I was going to have Greer come out. It's like, hey, look, for sixty years you've been giving flowers to the people of San Francisco. Now San Francisco gives back. And, and gives them this bouquet of flowers, right? And I knew this was going to go over like gangbusters, but I also knew that Al was going to look at the flowers and go, these are mine. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't get these from my stand. It was like you couldn't a better gag line for the guy, you know? Yeah. And he looks at me and goes, well, you know, they're okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. So coming up with uh, Noir City in uh, next festival, Satellite Festival, is going to be in Hollywood in late March. Uh, and this one, you've got a different pattern from the, uh, from the heist movies, from the big knockover. So um, tell, yes. us a bit about, tell us a bit about this. And I think it ties in with how you originally started programming your Noir City festivals back when you got started with all of this. Well, here's the deal with this. The reason we're doing this, and uh, we're still going to do the heist festival in Hollywood, but later. Uh, we're going to go back and do another festival at the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood in late June. And that will be the Heist Festival. <clears throat> and there will be some different films. Some different films from what you showed in San Francisco, right? There will be some different films from what we showed in San Francisco in the, in the later version in Hollywood. But the reason we are uh, doing this program um, in Hollywood, uh, end of March, March 24th to April 2nd. And I call it Film Noir A to B. And we're doing uh, double bills from the classic noir era. And each double bill is a legitimate A film paired with a genuine B film from the same year. So it's not like we're mixing and matching. It's like you're seeing a double bill that is conceivably a double bill that came out that year. So, for example, we're starting uh, in 1942, and we're showing This Gun for Hire, because it is the 75th anniversary of This Gun for Hire. So uh, we're showing that with a 20th Century Fox B film from 42 called Quiet, Please, Murder, <laughs> which is seen, right? That's a great title. So, Yes, it takes place in a library. Most of it okay. takes place in a library. Right. Yes, and George, San George Sanders is like a Nazi 
and there's like microfilm hidden in a book in the Los Angeles Public Library, and it's you know it's fantastic B movie <laughs> fodder, you know. Uh, so then, so then every double bill in the series is is from the same year, and the reason we're doing that beyond the fact that it's a fun show and we like the idea, the reason we're doing it is because in Los Angeles we, ha- you know, there's proximity to the studios. And Gwen DeGlease, who works for the American Cinematheque and is on the advisory council of the Film Noir Foundation, uh, she has very, very close relationships with the archivists at the studios, as as do I now. And we take advantage of this festival to go into those vaults and find stuff that is really rare. And, and we start this way in advance. Um, and we try to pull out stuff that you just can't see anywhere else. So, so this festival is like, um, in some respects, it's like ground zero for unearthing stuff that still exists, right? I mean, the Film Noir Foundation, our, our specialty is, well, it doesn't exist any longer. There's no print of it. We will raise money to find you know, a dupe negative or something, or make a new negative from an existing, the only existing print and restore it. But these movies we're showing in Hollywood are all existing prints that the studios have, in some cases, made new prints just for us. Like Universal has been fantastic. It's just like, you know, we've been, this will be the 19th year of the Noir City Film Festival in Hollywood. So it's, you know, we have proven ourselves. (laughs) And so when a studio like Universal will say, what about this movie, this movie, this movie? There are titles we're showing this year that we asked about two years ago. And now they've said, look, we finally got it, you know, the funds requisitioned and we made a new print of the film and you can show it. And and that's just absolutely fantastic. So it is like a complete resurrection of some of these titles very excited about it yeah that's 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 terrific so i guess you can go um you know people can go on to the uh the website the egyptian theater website uh to find the festival listing and to see exactly what we're showing because there are some uh, uh amongst the b films there are some really rare items that's uh right the egyptian theater in hollywood the uh, american cinematheque website right so sounds terrific and um it ties in, I think, with... Um, so when you originally first started programming these festivals, you were kind of gung-ho about, let's show everything obscure that we can get our hands on right away. And then it was yeah. one of your colleagues who kind of had you dialed back and program in a slightly different way, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, that was Anita Manga, who was the programmer at the Castro Theater in San Francisco. When she first invited me to come in and program a festival there... You know, I was obsessed with finding movies that hadn't been shown in 30, 40 years, right? And and it was Anita, who was a veteran programmer. I knew nothing about film programming until Anita kind of mentored me in this. And she said, no, 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 don't, don't expend yourself, <laughs> uh, you know, all at once, because you, you will find that the better way to do this is to... Uh, book something relatively obscure with a film that uh, that people know and then you'll have it both ways and 
and this is absolutely true. And uh, Haggai, I have to tell you, I've been doing this long enough now, right? I just said 19 years in Hollywood that I have learned how the cyclical nature of film programming. And yes, people who are my age and maybe they've been following me the whole time, they're going to go, oh, are you going to show, you know, out of the past again? Why don't you, I thought you were going to find something obscure. Well, look, when, the last time I showed out of the past might have been 14 years ago, right? Or, you know, and there's a 10-year-old, you know, when I, last time I showed it, there was a 10-year-old who's now 24 years old. It's, it, I mean, this is what I call the wheelhouse, right? Right. Because this was my film education happened between like the ages of 15 and 30. That was where I really got my film education, where I would go see three movies a day. And I, I you know, I couldn't get enough of these movies. And yeah, if somebody didn't, if, if a programmer would had said, I showed that five years ago. I'd be upset. Yeah. It's like, well, I, do, I wasn't there five years ago. You know, <laughs> I want you to show it again so I can see it on the big screen. And, uh, and, and situations like that one I talked about in Seattle, where there was a, the majority of the audience had not seen the killing, uh, just validates that. You know, it, it really pays to just, every so often, you go back to, a, to the classics, you know, and you show... Mildred Pierce and uh, Out of the Past and, uh, you know, The Killers and movies like that because uh, either people haven't seen them in 35 millimeter on a movie screen before or in some cases, and I have done this, uh, you know, I've told the audience this may be the last time you're going to see this in 35 millimeter on a movie screen. You know, you may never see this again. That's true. Uh, I'm not going to say that's sadly true because, you know, in some some cases it is. Um, but I'm happy to see that the studios are doing a much, much better job now of making, um, you know, really, really good digital copies of these movies. You know, 4K digital restorations of these films instead of just throwing a lousy, you know, DVD copy out there and saying, show this, show this right. instead, you know. Yeah. Uh, that was insulting. And and now we'll show The Killing or Rififi or The Asphalt Jungle or something, and it will be digital. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's it's hard to complain about the quality of it because uh, it, it's really good. Yeah. And, I and uh, you know, I don't know how hardcore the people are going to be listening to this, and some will say, you know, Eddie's a heretic because he's, you know, not decrying the death of 35 millimeter. And it's like, well, I'm not, if what's replacing it is really good and that I'm in a movie theater and I can see that the people paid their money to see the movie are completely satisfied and the film worked the way it's supposed to work. I'm not going to argue on behalf of the 5% or less of the audience who says, yeah, but it's not 35 millimeter. You know, we want it in 35 millimeter. And it's like, well, you know, I've, I would rather show a clean, beautiful digital version of a film and have it be a good show where the audience is completely engrossed and satisfied than a beat up 35 millimeter where people are distracted by the condition of the film. 
Right. That's that, I will make that decision now every time, yeah. unapologetically, I might add. Yeah, I mean, and with many of these um, uh, DCPs or these digital scans that they uh, that they give you to show, I mean, the the quality is so good. Um, I mean, a, like I guess a, a trained eye can kind of spot the difference between that and film in some ways, but it's still, it, um, I mean, so many of these. Really yeah, but just you look you terrific. have to really be struggling, you know, and not paying attention anyway if you're if you're <laughs> finding that difference. I mean, right. yes, I can tell the difference between digital and film, but what does the difference matter is the right. question yeah there's a difference w what is the that, that difference right yeah. i mean i it comes to the debate between film and digital this is the story i always tell and it to me represents the situation perfectly i was in chicago we were going niagara at the music box theater right it was a it was all color noir day right going lever to heaven niagara um Violent Saturday and um, something else is slipping my mind right now. Uh, another color film noir. And um, so th this guy comes out in the middle of Niagara and he's like really confrontational with me. And he says, so this is okay with you. You approve of this screening. And I said, yeah, what, I mean, what's the problem? Because I know that Fox had just made this DCP of Niagara and I had watched the first 45 minutes of it, and it was gorgeous. And the guy, the guy says, you mean you don't see that hazy blue line at the edge of the frame? And I said, well, I'm kind of watching Owen Monroe, who's in the middle of the frame, right. and she looks stunning. You know, yeah. I mean, you couldn't ask for more lush color than this. But he was offended by the fact that there was this hazy blue line at the edge of the frame. Uh, yeah, I, okay. Well, we all have our priorities, I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah, Marilyn Monroe in the middle of the frame in Technicolor is. Uh, yeah, I'll uh, I'll ignore everything else too <laughs> if we can get that yeah. on the big screen. Yeah. That's that's more than worth it. I just want to add one other little film film versus digital debate, which sure. honestly is is waning as a debate at this point. You know, I know the I know the people at the studios personally who are responsible for making these digital versions of the films and they are doing everything in their power to do the best possible job they can do and they feel beholden to the makers of these films to do it right and you know i just knowing the trouble they go to and having it having had it explained to me and seen the process firsthand I, I get a little short with people who say, you know, they're trying to foist this junk on us. And it's like, no, really, uh, they're not. You know, they're doing the absolute best they can. And, and the alternative, quite honestly, is you're not going to see that movie again. If the only way you're going to see it is going to be 35 millimeters shipped in a can, fewer and fewer venues are going to be able to show it, and the film is going to disappear. So if you want to take the hard line and say, I'll only watch 35mm, you're going to be watching nothing at some point, you know, and, and that's unfortunate. Now, you know, the Film Noir Foundation, we still believe in producing a photochemical restoration of the film and having a film artifact as the result of the restoration. From there, we can go on to making Blu-rays and DVDs and all that kind of stuff we have the physical 
35 millimeter artifact. I believe in that, right? Yes. But honestly, um, if at some point somebody wanted to pay to make a DCP of Woman on the Run, I'd be all for it, you know, because that would mean more venues would show it, which is the point, right? right. So I'm, I'm all for that. Uh, you know, we start with the best 35 millimeter we can get and we take it from there. So, Eddie, thanks so much for joining us here on our first episode of Noir Talk. Well, it was absolutely my pleasure, Haggai, and I, I wish you the best of luck with this podcast, this long overdue podcast, and uh, thanks for uh, uh, the Film Noir Foundation. I appreciate it very much. Okay, great. Thanks again. We'll be right back to wrap things up. Thanks again to Eddie Muller for joining us. You can receive all the latest news about the work of the Film Noir Foundation by signing up for our mailing list at filmnoirfoundation.org. You can also get updates by following us on social media at Film Noir Foundation on Facebook and Tumblr and at Noir Foundation on Twitter. And if you have any feedback for the podcast, you can contact us at podcast at filmnoirfoundation.org. We'll be back with another episode next month. And until then, thanks for joining us here at Noir Talk. <laughs>